you can record and and <laughs> that'd be a very good place to start actually. <laughs> yeah. How are we okay. help each other? You you press record and I'll wait here patiently until oh. you tell me that we're going. We're on. Okay. So ask me that question again. <laughs> What's wrong with this? Oh, that's nicely put. That the the, the question. It's, it is a really deep, deep question. Um, the short answer is that human beings don't actually live in the world. They live in their mental representations of the world. Yes. And so because they're not actually engaging with reality, but rather a model of it, and, and of course at a deep level, neurolinguistically and in a whole bunch of other ways, that's true for everyone, no matter how awake or not you are. Mm -hmm. But the, I guess you could say that it is possible through various practices to apprehend um, or that your model more closely matches reality than another person's model. That you could argue that I think quite successfully. Yeah. Yeah, anyway, so the problem for most people, many people, is they actually believe what goes on in between their ears and mistake that for reality. That is yeah. the problem. And so the conversation we were having before, that's a perfect example of that. And if you notice too, the incredibly pervasive tendency to divide things only into two, self and other, male and female, and the list is endless and just goes on. But that very, I remember once reading a very famous mathematician and philosopher whose work I admire very much. Um, his name is G. Spencer Brown. He was a, a genius. He said, a universe comes into being the moment, the instant a distinction is made. And then he went on to say, all distinctions are motivated. That's the key part. There's the half of reality that you like or want, and there's the other half coexisting in the same space. You don't want that. I don't like that. Mm. And all the stuff, all of the problems of the world literally have their genesis in that first distinction, which each of us make all the time, every time we look at something, every time we think about something new. And so all the practices that we might talk about, and it doesn't matter where the practices come from, um, that, that are designed to move you beyond your limited sense of self. Let's just talk about those kinds of practices. They're all, they achieve their effectiveness by disconnecting you from your own thought stream. And, and by the way, I don't mean, it's not a lobotomy we're talking about here. <laughs> well, because it is, <laughs> you might think that's one way of doing it. Now, what, what I'm talking about basically is just, introducing a pause between yeah. what goes on in the mind and your reaction to mm. what is happening in the mind. If you can introduce a pause, I mean, that's the old advice about counting to 10 if you feel angry, isn't it? If you think about yeah. it, it's a very practical way of doing that. Yeah. And it, it's, it's interesting that you, you're mentioning that because I actually yesterday was um, talking to someone who was saying that, um, yeah, bringing silence um, to your mind and to your body, just it does create that space between the thoughts um, and then how, you know, everything opens up. The thought and the reflex. Many people's behaviour is 100% reflexive. Which is, oh, well, I'm glad you brought that up because it's part of the question. 
<laughs> yes, we, we, sh we should get onto your list of questions. Um, but we can keep coming. We can come back to any of these things. But uh, yeah. the real, the problem facing everyone today, and especially in this time of pandemic, is is it possible to to feel happy? I'm not talking about happy as a loon kind of happy. I mean, I mean satisfied or content without being complacent. Somewhere in that middle ground, mm. where you actually where you feel the joy of being alive, if I can put it that way. Now, a lot of people walking around this morning in Greenwell Point, I came across a lot of faces where clearly, even though people are out having their morning walk, quite a few of them, they weren't actually having all that good a time. And the reason is, of course, is everyone is thinking about what's happening in the world. But the fact is, right there in Greenwell Point, right next to the water, um, and it's an exquisite place. It's a truly magnificent wow. place. Anyway, you, you said I'm, I'm getting that. I'm trying to point to what can one do so that one's experience of normal daily life is something that is pleasing. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say stretching is one of those things. <laughs> Well, and, and let me, I, I want to explain why, because you, you could be forgiven for thinking that, of course, I would say that because that's what our work is about, but it's not that. The thing that is not, has not obvious, and it doesn't seem to have struck anyone except a meditation teacher that I work with. When I'm teaching meditation with him, my concentration is on the body work side of it, and his concentration is on the Dharma side of it, the, the original sutras and the things that Buddhism is based on. Anyway, the reason I focused on the body in my own practice is simply this. If you are feeling a part of your body, and my favorite part of the body to feel is what's actually happening in my tummy, because it's, it's immediately accessible and it, it's, it's directly tangible, but it doesn't really matter which part of the body you use, but that, that's a good one for me. This is not an obvious thing, what I'm about to say, but the sensations in the body exist only in the unfolding present. They're not, not 30 seconds ago, not 30 seconds into the future, not one second ago, not one second into the future. If you're feeling sensations in your body, at least part of your awareness is located in the unfolding present. And that's always the recommendation made, isn't it? To try and be as present as often as possible. Right. And you can see you can see people when they're not being present, can't you? I mean, <laughs> we call it checking out. You can just you're talking to the person, and all of a sudden the person's just left the room. Boom. <laughs> oh no, it's just like that. Yeah. Come back, come back. <laughs> yeah. So, so for me, as a I, I started learning how to meditate maybe 35 years ago, something like that. But for me the sudden realization one day that what was actually happening in my body from a sensation perspective, if I, if I developed my concentration sufficiently and I could hold my awareness on those sensations, I was in the present. And as, I, as that got a bit stronger and I got more skillful at it and it also became more familiar, um, I'm, I was able to hold myself in that present for longer. Now, in the beginning, this is such a crack up. In the beginning, we'll say to people, okay, just we'll give you a, a simple exercise to start. Just hold your awareness on 
five breaths in and out. So you breathe in. That comes to an end and then you start to breathe out. And as you breathe out, you count one. And so at the end of a five or 10 minute exercise, we'd say, so what number did you get up to? And most people don't get past two yeah. before a thought comes into the mind. And until you practice these things, the thought is so powerful that it, it literally takes you over momentarily. But it is possible to hold your awareness on, on the sensations in the body of the breath. The breath is accessible to us, available to us at all times. And that's why most of the traditions talk about that as being a very good place to start. And it's what the Tibetan Buddhists that I know call a milk, blood and bone practice, meaning it doesn't matter whether you're a beginner, a baby, or an intermediate or old, ancient in my case, um, it, it is the same practice. You just get better at it. That's all. Well, I mean, maybe I, maybe that's a delusion. Maybe you don't really get better at it. Maybe you're better at convincing yourself that you're better at it. Anyway. And I, I think, too, it, it's only Olivia. Olivia said to me once, it was about two years ago now, we were, we were deciding whether or not we would actually spend some time and work with a particular teacher who was or maybe it might be three or four years ago now. And she had a moment of what I call a moment of perfect clarity. She said, I'm only interested in practices that will make me or help me to become a better human being. I mean, that's such a loaded statement, but it's so powerful. Yeah. I mean, it presumes that each person knows what becoming a better human being actually oh, means and what they feel like. And, and I think to, to a large extent, we actually do know that. It's just, it is very similar, in my view, to the idea of being able to distinguish between right and wrong. The fact is, most people can easily distinguish between right and wrong. And that's interesting, don't you think? I mean, what's all that based on? Well, it depends on your culture and a whole bunch of other things. But at the same time, there are also many people who do not find it easy to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. or the good thing that's interesting and then the question of why and so on and so forth but anyway look i no doubt i've sidetracked you hugely let us <laughs> let us let us get back to your list of questions i really am interested no, well, let's start, start question number one well this might be a loaded question but what is stretch therapy i mean it's, it's the number question number one question i get asked from anyone who I talk to about or mention stretch therapy? What is it? Yes. Yeah. It's a good question. And if Liv was sitting here with us, she would just roll her eyes and I'll tell you why. The problem, the reason that we're not wildly successful on YouTube and Vimeo and all the other and social media, we're, we're not. We are just, we are only very modestly successful, is because we do not have a clear, simple message or marketing brand or any of any of those kinds of things and so we are going through an exercise now we send out a survey and I, I presume you got that survey at some point would have been about six or eight weeks ago where we sent it out and it was a whole bunch of questions about what attracted you to stretch therapy in the first place what do you know stretch therapy to be how has it helped you blah 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 the reason it's it is difficult so I'm, I'm two minutes into the question and I haven't even attempted to grapple with the question this is this is just typical. And the reason is this. 
In one sense, stretch therapy is something extremely simple. We have simply rediscovered an approach to body work that no doubt has been discovered in the past a million times, but also forgotten by generations. I remember when I was teaching in a yoga studio once in Berkeley in California, the person who owned the studio said, oh, this is, this is how yoga used to be before group classes were invented. Now, this is a really interesting point. Mr. Iyengar, the Iyengar, the, the, the creator of Iyengar Yoga, he created the group class in yoga. Up until that time, most people are not, or many people are not aware of this, but up until that time, yoga was always taught one-on-one. -on -one. Right. The guru and the disciple. And that is the way it's been taught in India since the, the days of the Buddha. And yoga was around before the Buddha. So that's well over two and a half thousand years ago. That's interesting. Once the group class started, a whole another set of skills is required by the teacher. Because instead of just concentrating on one person, all of a sudden, if you're trying to be a good teacher, you're actually having to divide your awareness and you're you have to constantly be checking around the room. I think a mark of a good teacher is someone who can teach 20 or 25 people at once. And we, are, we usually recommend to our trainee teachers that they start with smaller numbers in the beginning because it's overwhelming. Or else you'll think you're doing a great job and you've just ignored the person you secretly don't like. And everyone's got their favourites in a group and the people you don't like. So on that note, you'll notice, and you, you've, you, you've done plenty of work, so I was with me, so you know this is true. I make sure that I go around and work with everyone every day on the workshop. Now that's a, that's a choice, it's a discipline. It's because I'm the same as everyone else. There are people that I'm attracted to and people I'm not attracted to. And that is that same division, distinction thing that I was talking about before. But we don't want that. Not in the class teaching situation. We have to, we have to step up. We have to be better than our reflexive behaviour suggests we should be, in my view anyway. So that means a simple decision. I will work with each person in the room every day even if it's only for a few minutes, makes all the difference. And you'll see that all of our good teachers, they teach exactly the same way. They get up off the mat. They're not just lecturing, teaching from a fixed position. They get up off the mat while people are in a, say, a long exercise, something that might require, with doing both sides, it might require five, six or seven minutes to complete. Um, here's a typical one, like a hamstring stretch, or maybe you're doing pancake prep or something like that. That's going to take you at least that amount of time. That's the opportunity where the good teacher gets up off the mat and works with two people perhaps during that seven minute spot. And on that goes. Anyway, so to answer your question, what is stretch therapy? Stretch therapy is simply a particular approach to body work, that's all. Now when I say body work, what do I mean? Well, stretch therapy actually encompasses strengthening techniques as well as stretching as you know. But we decided, we made a, a frankly marketing decision some time ago to only concentrate on the stretching part because we thought that was going to be an easier thing to position ourselves in the market via. But the fact is the system is a stretching system. So if you want to improve your range of movement, it will make you more flexible. But in our opinion, that's the least important part of it. The second aspect of it is that there, we have a huge number of strengthening techniques. We also have a huge number of repatterning techniques. And when I say repatterning, I mean we can take someone who can't move very well and help them to move extremely well over a period of time. So 
around here, for example, people don't believe I'm 67. I live in Greenwell Point and we, we move around people all the time. And we came across a friend of ours the other day who, he said, I've been meaning to ask you, I've been meaning to ask you for some time, how old are you? And Liv said, he'll be 67 in a couple of weeks time. And he, his jaw just dropped. <laughs> and he said, I don't believe you. Why are you telling me that? What do you do with that? Anyway, and the, re and the reason is, just going back to the, what I was talking about when we first started talking about making a distinction, if you're, let's say, standing on a road that's a, that's a kilometre long and you can actually see down this road and the human being pops into your view, what's the first thing you notice about that person? The first thing you notice is you get an impression of their age, isn't, isn't it? Or could be male or female. Yes. Those two things very closely. Now, they are two primary distinctions, don't you think? And that's interesting. And they're all motivated, as I said before, quoting the great G. Spencer Brown. So how do we know how old someone is when they're half a kilometre from us and we can't see their face or any details at all, but we can see that that's a human being walking towards us, say? Posture. Not just that, how they move. Yes how they move, even in stillness, there's a posture, as, as you say, but when people are moving and our brains are, well, pattern-seeking organisms, that's what human beings are actually best. And sometimes they make connections in those patterns that don't actually exist too, but that's another, another conversation. We have many, many channels that are open in us all the time. And the, the five senses or Buddhism also talks about the mind as the sixth sense. They, they organise their understanding of how we see and how we smell and how we hear quite differently to Western science. Talk about that another time too. But they're, they're not the only senses that we have. When you're standing in front of someone, for example, you know exactly how they're feeling, don't you? Not just from the expression on their face, the way they're holding themselves. Is this person happy or sad? Is this person tense? Are they about to take a step forward and whack me? Are they angry? Now we know all those things from, we call it body language, but it's many, many channels open at the same time. And yes, we, we apprehend body language visually, of course, but it's more than visual, isn't it? Many people, many people, um, even if they can't actually see the person, can feel that person. And certainly in an intimate, situa in an intimate situation, that's obviously the case. So the, anyway, we have all these channels that are available to us all the time. But if we are only interacting with the channel that's dialed in between our ears, there yeah. are so many things that we can miss. Yeah, that's anyway. Right. And misconstrue so, as well. We can convince ourselves of... of something that we see but actually really isn't it's not real mm. that's normal mm. when i say normal i mean normal in the statistical sense that would be more common than not common yeah i think yeah. to see we well it really goes back to again comes back to uh, we will be talking about g spencer brown quite a bit today i can see it comes back to those first distinctions but somebody says something and already as you're listening to it you're already deciding which bits of it go into the good basket and which bits go into the bad basket, right? Or the like or dislike or whatever the two-part system is that we use. And it's been argued that the reason why we developed this 
simple system and sometimes it's not just simple it's simplistic it's too simple the reason we developed that is simply evolutionary survival for example if you suddenly become aware that something is running towards you and it looks dangerous you don't want to think about it you don't want to analyze it you just have to run so that's purely a reflexive response right you don't think about that but once we've taken care of let's talk about maslow's hierarchy briefly once we've taken care of the shelter dimension and the we have enough food to eat and enough to drink then in my view at least anyway we need to move beyond the reflexive mode of behavior into something else and then we ask ourselves what that might look like would it be more interesting anyway getting back to the stretch therapy question stretch therapy is is an approach to body work where the primary focus in the body work is you put yourself into a position or you do a particular movement or something like that and you're constantly asking yourself how does that feel mm -hmm. this is the unique and distinguishing characteristic of stretch therapy of course all schools of body work do at some point talk about how does that feel but we make ours the primary focus here's how here's how i used to begin a, a beginner's class I would say, look around the room, make sure I had eye contact with literally everyone in the room, and I'd say, I will have absolutely no sympathy for anyone who hurts themselves in class. I know. <laughs> I've been doing the class. And it, it sounds, I'm looking for a pair of socks because I'm freezing, just hang on. It does, it does sound like a, a confronting and, and a kind of a horrible thing to say, but then I go on to say... It does, but it also brings back accountability. We're, we're like, oh, that's right, I'm in charge of my own body here. <laughs> well, more than that, it doesn't matter how experienced the teacher is, and we have worked, we have both worked with some very experienced teachers. The reality is... Ah, uh, socks feel so good, don't they? <laughs> the reality... <laughs> The reality is no one can see inside your body. Exactly. It doesn't matter how experienced the teacher is. The extent to which we can get a sense of how you're doing or how you're coping with anything is only by, it's by inference and it's by, you know, assessing those clues that we were talking about before, the body language and everything else. So right from the very first class we say, and we do flesh this out a bit, we say, look, the reason we're not going to have any sympathy for you if you hurt yourself is because we are putting you in charge of your own body right now now if that is not if you're not happy with that perhaps you should think about leaving now no one ever leaves but in my opinion we need to bring our students to that point of decision and that point of focus yeah and then we say and so when you're moving, let's say we're doing a hamstring stretch, everyone's sort of archetypal flexibility exercise. When you're moving into a hamstring stretch, your awareness, in my view at least anyway, should not be on the person next to you to see how flexible they are in comparison to you. That's right, all that. Um, and certainly not on showing off your own flexibility, which is something that a lot of flexible teachers do, unfortunately, make the mistake, in, at least in my view, of doing. No, rather, your awareness is completely on the slow extension of whatever limb you're using. I mean, maybe you're doing a bend to straight leg hamstring stretch, or maybe you're doing a bending over straight legs hamstring stretch, lots of, of them. You are feeling 
the full suite of sensations that comes from getting yourself into that position. And moreover, you're doing it at a speed, and it's always slower than what people want to do it at, naturally. Naturally. Because I'm in a hurry. I want to get to the end of the class. I've got things I need to do. Anyway, all the different things that, that go on in people's minds that make them rush through everything. And what a waste of, what a waste of this life to yeah. rush through everything. Amazing. And, and again, another topic of conversation, perhaps for later. So you're in this position and you're feeling the limbs extending and you're so in tune with what's actually happening in your body that you actually feel all the things that are happening. When you're that present in your body, you cannot hurt yourself. Yes. Why? Because discomfort, pain, strong sensation that it's not experienced as pleasurable will occur way before injury will occur. That's all. So it's as simple as that. And, and but, but there's more. The closer you pay attention to this constellation of sensations as you're working with your own body, the more closely you get to know this substance, this thing that you live in, which for most, not most people, I, I use that expression too often, many people experience their body as an impediment mm. or a limitation or in, even in some schools, something to transcend. Or our view of the stretch therapy perspective and not just the stretch therapy perspective is that this is where meditation happens. It happens in a body. This is where pleasure is experienced. It happens in a body. This is what's walking and talking in space and time right now. So it, we would say, my background is logic, that I'm a philosopher by training, and that's what I do with my master's and PhD research in. We would say this is non-trivial. Mm. <laughs> Isn't that a great expression? <laughs> Yeah, so pay attention. Anyway, so that's what stretch therapy is. And also, too, there are a couple of other things about it that, that are the easier things to explain. Stretch therapy also has, I'll take a step back, there is a book that people have heard of, but very few people have actually read, called Proprioceptive Neuromuscular Facilitation. It was written back in 1953, the year that I was born. That was when it was published, I think. And it was three nurses wrote it, and they were part of something called the Kabat Kaiser Institute, which is an institute set up to help the cerebrally and spinally injured patients regain uh, lost patterns of movement. So, a typical one, for example, someone who's had a brain injury or someone's had a car accident may not be able to easily roll over onto one side and then push themselves up in a sitting position and then get up, for example. That's a classic PNF. PNF spiral diagonal technique and the whole textbook was originally written as a series of patterns for nurses to work their patients through it was a workbook that's what it's for and yet everyone's heard of what they call the PNF technique in stretching there was nothing about stretching in that book there's a small paragraph on page 98 from memory where the authors spoke about five techniques they used to help patients restore range of movement but there was literally no detail there was just the five names agonist antagonist contract relax hold relax something else something else 
And so I took one of those fragments. In fact, we changed something they called hold relax and we called it contract relax because it's a much better description of what actually happens when you do it. We took that fragment um, and this is what I was doing when I was living in Japan. I, I took that fragment and I applied it to all of Mr. Ayanga's fundamental poses to see how that applying force in the opposite direction to the stretch could aid the position and the feeling and the sensation in the pose and whether or not one could go a bit further into it. We found that that was very effective, but in the last five or 10 years or so, we've gone back to the original textbook and we've started adding some of the other things too done in particular ways. And of course they all are effective. And the most important reflex, the neurological reflex that we use and we always have in, in stretch therapy is called the reciprocal inhibition reflex. And I know you understand what that means, but let me just briefly describe it um, to your listeners. The classic description of how this works is, in my view, is not terribly helpful. It doesn't really give people a handle on it. The typical, the typical um, explanation is something like if you want to punch or throw an arm out, the bicep muscle has to relax as the tricep contracts, and that's what propels the fist away from the shoulder. But it's, it's much, much more than that. In stretching, for example, this is, this is where people might be able to get a real feeling for it. If you're doing the lunge bent limb hamstring, for example, where you're in a lunge position, you've got your chest resting on your thigh, and let's say the foot is underneath the knee, you're in the beginning position, and then you slowly use that quadricep to push that foot away from you, right? so opening out the knee angle. If you use the quadricep to open out the knee, when quadriceps are contracting, the hamstrings are inhibited. And when you are in close enough contact with what's going on inside your body, you can feel that vividly. Now, a beginner can't feel it. And so that's why I said before, I, or at least I touched on this, that this approach, the stretch therapy approach, is the most extraordinarily responsive way of trying to work out the actual nature of this thing you live in. It's incredibly powerful, but it, it's not very sexy. I, how do you explain that briefly? I'm damned if I know. We haven't been able to do it anyway so far, but we're working on it. And that's what, I, that's what draws me to it. It's why I love stretch therapy so much. And it's not because we're just getting together or, or getting into a stretch. There's so many different aspects to it. And I love, I love the strength aspect to yes. stretch therapy. Um, it's, it's probably, it's what has helped me the most as well. Um, so I, I, I love all this. And, and me too. Yeah. Can I, I've just, I've just thought of something. I know I'm interrupting you. Stretch therapy enriches the flavor of your life. <laughs> that's, that's really, that's really what it does. But how do you, it's not an easy sell, is it? <laughs> I, but that's really what it's doing. I mean, the, the, the experience of, of being you is a particular suite of sensations in the body which, you, which are you. Now, I don't know what that is, and you have no idea what it's like to live in my body either, of course. But each of us certainly can say with accuracy, I'm feeling better today or I'm not feeling as good today. We are so clear 
in our experience of that. How did you sleep last night, darling? Oh, terrible. You know what I mean? There's that sort of daily life conversation. But that begs the question of how do we know how we feel? Well, stretch therapy, in my view, is the, the most practical method to refine the experience or the feeling of being you. And it starts, as you know, because I wrote the book Overcome Neck and Back Pain. That was my first book. It starts with, oh, goodness. It, <laughs> put that it, starts, it starts with, okay, I know I'm not feeling good because this is hurting or that's hurting or when, or when I bend down to try and pick up something off the floor, my back goes into spasm or the 10,000 other answers that one could have to that question of how do you feel today? So for us, again, this is a stretch therapy perspective. We begin at the rehab end, if you like, of body work. And we say, well, what's sore? What's hurting? What can't you move? Can you squat down? Can you reach up to a high shelf? Can you reach your arm above your head like this in line with your spine? Is that something that's easy to do or not? Or where are you on that range? And how do we improve that? Because the result is, we have found, you improve the range of movement up to, let's call it the theoretical limits of the joints. We don't want to be able to poke our arms straight back behind us because the body just doesn't work that way. But, but it does work this way. This is one of the fundamental movements of the arm in the shoulder joint. Up to the point of achieving that full range of movement, every increment of improvement is regarded as a benefit by the person who has that body. And we don't have to convince people of that. We give them one exercise to do, and immediately we're saying, well, how did that feel? And there's only three possible answers. It feels worse no change, or it feels better. There's really no alternative to that. So that's how we begin our first class. Yeah. And that approach keeps going forever. Where does stretch therapy come into play for um, athletes, runners, performance? People, running is something I have to know. It's almost like athletes are scared of stretching. It's like, oh, well, it's going to make... It's going to make me weaker. I don't need that much flexibility. I'm not going to get enough power. Or like, It's just yeah. always controversial to say stretch. I have read all of that appalling research, by the way. You touched on three different studies then in, that, in your classic someone's reaction to stretching. Firstly, no one who teaches stretching has ever recommended doing a strong contraction stretch before trying to you know, lift a weight off the ground or to demonstrate you know, how high you can jump or any of those things. No one has ever recommended that. So in philosophy, we call that a straw man, and this is how this goes. When someone sets up a ludicrous situation and tests that and find that the, that the result is X or Y, it's a straw man because no one ever suggested doing that in the first place. What we talk about when we talk about improving range of movement, we're not talking about improving range of movement right now, although that happens. What we're talking about is what will your range of movement look like in three months or six months' time? Not at the same time as you're trying to lift your heaviest weights off the ground, but rather, will my mobility, can I squat better if my ankles are looser, for example? In the Olympic lifting, I used to be an Olympic lifter and I've also run competitively as well at different times in my life. Um, all of these things are true. If you improve your ankle flexibility, it'll improve your squat position enormously. 
but it will not do it immediately. But you'll feel and see those improvements as you go. So getting back to the runner example, that particular piece of research that the runners rely on to not stretch um, via was just one of the most terrible pieces of research that's ever been done. I, I won't go into the details because it'll probably be scurrilous and scandalous. But anyway, um, the, the, all one needs to say to a runner who's contemplating on doing stretching is, well, where are you tight and sore now? Where are you stiff? What doesn't feel good? Here's another word picture that'll make this point, I hope. Let's say you're lying face down on a massage table and you're being massaged and the person is running their hands up and down one side of your spine and you just feel like a cat purring. You can just, you can feel it, can't you? Mm, that just feels so good. But then they move a quarter of an inch and they come across something that it makes you just jump like that. Oh, what was that? All of the off spots in your body are just those places you can't voluntarily relax. That's all. Nothing more than that. And so when you get a runner on the table, for example, you just know where they're going to be tight. Their calf muscles are going to be tight. Yes. Things possibly, glutes maybe, back muscles definitely, especially if they're quad dominant and so on and on it goes. And so the short answer to whether or not runners can benefit from stretching is found not in their running performance directly necessarily, although eventually yes, but rather how do you feel when you're running? Mm -hmm. Is running a pleasurable activity for you or does something is something hurting? Now if, if something if if nothing is hurting, then we could argue, and there is research on this, we could argue that loosening your hip flexors will actually improve the speed that you can run over the ground. It will. Why? Because every time the leg is, every time you're kicking off, and this is more important for sprinters, but it's true for all runners because it's about how much energy you have in your body to do the distance that you're running and how much energy is taken out of the body by each stride. And so, and this is just orthodoxy in, in running in the running world now, what we're, what people are trying to find is their most efficient way of running but no one ever thinks about loosening restrictions as one of the gateways to efficiency, but absolutely and unquestionably it is. There's a, f a famous picture of the great sprinter, Michael Jordan. That is his name, I think, isn't it? Uh, the Johnson? Black American guy. Hmm? Johnson? Johnson, thank you. Jordan with the basketball. Johnson. <laughs> now he, there is a famous picture of him. If you just look him up, if your listeners look him up, there is a classic photograph of him in mid-sprint wearing those gold shoes that he ran in that particular Olympics in. And his back leg, firstly, his spine is straight. His body is completely upright. His lumbar spine is not extended, just a, just a very gentle, normal lumbar, or less than normal lumbar lordosis. But his back leg is about 40 degrees in extension and he's completely off the ground. He's running flat out, world record speed. But here's the thing, the average person who can't get anywhere near that kind of speed cannot get their back leg into 10 degrees of extension, let alone 40. And he was doing it by his own physical power. Yeah. That's an extraordinary achievement. But people look at that photograph, they don't see that dimension of that photograph. But if you look him up, he was a master stylist as a sprinter. And he was the most efficient sprinter of his day. Yeah. That's why he was the world record holder. Anyway, so that's something you could perhaps 
actually, you know what? when people say, well, why should I stretch? I always respond, well, you don't have to do anything. <laughs> That's right. You're like, oh. There's absolutely no reason why you should stretch. Yeah, yeah. But it and brings then, awareness into our bodies, and that's the most powerful thing we could it, ever have. It brings awareness firstly, and then as that awareness, as that experience of your experience of yourself is refined, contentment and happiness naturally manifest. Yeah, that's right. It's just like a massage. I mean, it's so yeah. often we'll get people on the table and like, oh, I didn't know that was tight. I didn't know that was sore. And it's not until you're... you're getting that work there you're bringing that awareness it's just like with stretching you're not aware of what is tight restricted or doesn't move so well you might have the range but it might not be as smooth or graceful in that range and you don't know that until you take yourself through the movement very gently yes gently and pausing and feeling what yes. that feels like. Yeah. And then asking yourself the next question, which is, can I let my tummy go completely soft? 